From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. Oh, I'm having full flashbacks to every wedding I've ever been to in my whole life. Ever. In the whole world. Ever. Anywhere in the world. What makes a successful Christmas party? Um, everybody's talking the following day. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a man from Saudi Arabia sitting next to me, and by God was he absolutely ecstatic. I was more happy for him than I was myself. <laughs> Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, the visceral and immersive experience of watching All Quiet on the Western Front. Let's be careful out there. Office Christmas parties are back. And Uncle Joe Duffy on a mission to find some odd Christmas presents. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that's already packing the wipes to clean that photocopier. There's an old Monty Python sketch that involves diners in a restaurant getting menus of topics to talk about. That seems a lot, well, okay, a little, like the first item on this morning's Musings on the News, or Newsings, if you will, on The Ryan Tuberty Show. There's a guy in America who goes for drinks uh, to a bar with his friends pretty much every Friday. And his daughter thought it was gas because the dad, before he goes out, heads to his laptop, strikes down five things that are essentially topics of conversation with his friends. An agenda to have the chats with his pals. It's a good idea, isn't it? So just rather than coming out going, how's things, Grant? You know, that Irish thing where you say, how are you, Grant? And yourself, good, good. And yourself, good, good. You know, when, when you watch first dates, it happens all the time. How are you? Great, great. And you, good, good, good. And he, and he, how are you? Yeah, no, you said it five times. I, 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 you run out of things to say sometimes. I find that sometimes when it comes to the power of small talk, you might need a little microscope in your pocket because the conversation can be so minute. You need to see it. So what are you watching on Netflix? Oh, this is very good. And what are you watching on Amazon? Yeah. See anything good last night? Yeah. See the Quinn documentary? Yeah, I did, yeah. And you run out of, or you kind of run out of steam, run out of road. But this guy, I think he's got his act together. An agenda. People are going out again. People are going to the pub again. They're going to the restaurants again. They're going to the, hopefully, coffee shops again. Office parties. All this kind of thing. So a little agenda. And there's a picture of this man's agenda beside his beers in the restaurant. I'm just trying to pick up one of these. Topic number one to discuss, Jordan Love. Now, this is American, so he's obviously an American football player. We all know that. We do know. Number two, World Cup, obviously, for the lads and the lassies there. Three, China and Russia. So it's quite a global reach in their small talk. Uh, four, after Christmas party with the boys, whatever that means. And five, general discussion. So he's kind of leaving the fifth dimension to the... Fates, really. Let's see. what Whatever. It's kind of it's the any other business of small talk, really, isn't it? AOB. General discussion. Like, how are you? I'm grand. And you? Grand. What are you watching? on oh. So that is the agenda. Putting the world to rights with his friend. And this guy's daughter says, my dad goes to a bar with his friends every Friday and he makes a list of discussion topics and it kicked off from there. I think it's, I think it's quite good. Meanwhile, the little film that could keeps on going. On Colleen Kuhn, it's got to be the great Irish movie success story of the year 2022. And its global reach and march continues apace. And fair play to all involved. It ranked number one best reviewed movie or film, as we say here, of 2022 on Rotten Tomatoes. The only film with a 100% tomatometer score. That's pretty impressive. If you haven't seen it, it's a beautiful thing. It, it's, I think the, the word I would use to describe on Colin Kuhn is meditative. It's, it's got a very nice, easy vibe to it. Um, not uncomplicated, but just very beautiful. And 
makes you think, reflective. And uh, they have been saying that on the, the 16th of December, it opens in New York and LA for one week ahead of its full release in February. So uh, it is heading off to the United States. The march continues. Well done to them. Hi thee to the cinema immediately. If you haven't seen on Colleen Kuhn, it's just a gorgeous film, really. But you say, I've already seen on Colleen Kuhn. So what news of legendary crooner Neil Diamond? Well, Ryan has the scoop on Mr. Forever in Blue Jeans. Of course, Neil Diamond. <laughs> just keeping a slight, it's like Diamond Watch, really, isn't it? Um, Neil Diamond popped up at that thing I was telling you about yesterday, the, 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 the musical of his life that, that opened in New York. And sure enough, everyone went to see it. And sitting up in the box was the man himself, Neil Diamond, who had retired from touring in 2018 after being diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And he was greeted with a standing ovation upon entering the theatre just before the start of the musical, which chronicles his life and features his music. But the big surprise came after the curtain call when everyone looked up to see what did Neil think of the show. And Neil stood up from his box seat and he had his microphone in his hand. He couldn't resist it, even Neil. I'm having full flashbacks to every wedding I've ever been to in my whole life, ever, in the whole world, ever, anywhere in the world, anywhere. That song follows around. But look, it's feel good, it's good times. Um, apart from the hands touching, hands, we don't literally have to do that if you don't. Are you really going to refuse the hand that wants to touch your hand at the celebration of your or your friend's or your relation's wedding? Are you going to ruin it for everyone? Really? What's happened to you? Anyway... What's going on in the world of crime fiction? Louise Penny, one of my favourite writers of recent times, a Canadian, uh, she wrote the Armand Gamache series. Some of you loved it. Some of you thought, not for me, fair enough. I'm on book 14 of the 18-part series currently. They are lovely reads in between, you know, just like a sorbet I've said before, in between other reads, you just go, oh, I think I'll go back to Three Pines, this little village, and you know all the characters, and he's the the main police inspector of, of the series, Armand Gamache. Lovely man, lovely wife, lovely vibes, but darkness all the way through it. Really good books, great. If you really want to start a great series, go there. Not so sure about the Amazon series they've made of it. Watch the first episode. I'll go back again, but not sure. But the books are wonderful. 18 books there waiting for you. And start at the beginning. I always say that, start at the beginning and follow through. Uh, they're just terrific. But anyway, she uh, has written all these and she's uh, four million copies sold worldwide. She won the Agatha Award for Best Contemporary Novel for the 16th book, All the Devils Are Here. I haven't gotten read that yet. She's a broadcaster, journalist, was named the Order of Canada, uh, to the Order of Canada. And we spoke to her here with uh, Hillary Clinton a couple of years ago and had great fun. But she's been talking about the five books that inspired her prolific writing career. I'm always fascinated by the books that move people. Um, in their lives and Charlotte's Web is one Never Cry Wolf by Farley Moat which I've never heard of let alone written, uh, read The House of the Spirits by Isabel Allende and 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez which I did read and because my brain is pretty linear didn't quite get I mean I know it's magic realism and all but kind of found myself going eat your greens eat your greens eat your greens but um, 
no, it's a, it's a classic and it's a beloved book. But I, uh, And the collected poems of W.H. Auden, which makes sense because a lot of the uh, Gamash books feature poetry randomly throughout it, including um, uh, Seamus Heaney. Start with Louise Penny and end with Seamus Heaney. Now there's a journey. But now, down to the fine details. It's funny, uh, the attention to detail. An art teacher once said to us in school, if you go to a beautiful gallery like the National Gallery or wherever you might go or the Portrait, Portrait Gallery in London or something like that, another favourite, uh, think of picking two or three paintings before you go. Look at them properly and then leave. Because you know the way you go in, you know, there's, like, there's Jacques Yates and there's Monet and there's Picasso. Nothing really goes in, but it's lovely advice. Pick three paintings and just alight on them and really enjoy them and eat them rather than trying to eat everything in the buffet. Just take a croissant and a pan au chocolat, <laughs> maybe an apple, and off you go. Um, and I, I thought it was great advice. And the reason I mention that is because I never really looked properly at the cover of the Fleetwood Mac album, Rumours. Never, never crossed my mind. I remember seeing Mick Fleetwood, yeah, obviously, on, on, the, on the cover of that um, um, album, doing his thing. He's kind of standing with his foot up and... Uh, seems to be having a nice time with Stevie Nicks, just, you know, kind of elegant looking. But I never realised he had a, what looked like a pair of possibly wooden or steel uh, balls. I'm not trying to be coarse here, but it's just a matter of fact, around his waist and while he's holding hands with Stevie Nicks. Never, I never, I never saw them. And sure enough, I'm looking at the cover now and they are wooden balls and they dangle between his legs on the cover of Fleetwood Mac's Rumours album. And he said, he's been talking about them and he said, I came out, I have to admit, he said, I had a couple of glasses of English ale and came out of the toilet with these. I ripped them off the toilet and had them hanging down between my legs. And suitably, I walked out on stage with these two lavatory chains with these wooden balls hanging down. And after that, it just stuck. Anyway, the point of this story is that they, the aforementioned spherical object, let's move it on a little bit, have sold at auction. Yeah. For £104,000 sterling. You know what I mean? So, I, so it's back to that painting and the, the art. I never looked closely at the album. I never saw that detail. That £104,000 sterling worth of detail. Pass me by. I just saw a man and a woman in nice outfits, seeming, seemingly happy and flogging an album. The fine art of flogging an album. Finally, time to get down with the kids. Who's the biggest TikTok star of the year not as it happens Ed Sheeran not Sam Smith they come third and second respectively but actually it's a guy called Steps with a Z Z or Z Steps and he has 2.8 million followers and went viral uh, this summer okay now 500 year old man reading this out Steps has 200 it sounds like Steps Steps has 2.8 million followers his song Cramp Dat. I know, I know. I knew that would, that would get a laugh. Cramp Dat. <laughs> it's not that funny. <laughs> Cramp Dat is the name of the song that you were all obviously listening to. <laughs> which, it gets worse, which samples Soulja Boys. <laughs> 2007 hit Crank That, which I notice is a T-H-A-T as opposed to a D-A-T. So... A little bit of cramp that, crank that, soldier boy and steps. All in that one article, just trying to explain to you. It was easier in my day when you could just have to say Ed Sheeran and Sam Smith. 
But they're now heading back, back down the back nine, really. Although I do see Kate Bush is running up that hill. It was number six after the resurgence. Or resurgence. Thanks to Stranger Things. Thank God we got to Kate Bush there. I thought the whole show might collapse under the weight of Stepses and his TikTok triumphs. And maybe that's as good a place as any to leave the Ryan Toberty musings for today. So the powers that be are exploring something called Project Bruce. Or Better Road User Charging Evaluation. Because motorists in the future could be told based on the length of their journey instead of a one-off charge. Claire Byrne spoke to Professor Brian Caulfield from the School of Engineering at Trinity College Dublin and motoring journalist Geraldine Herbert about Transport Infrastructure Ireland's plans for the future of tolling. Brian gave a quick overview of where these plans are at. The National Roads Authority looked at this um, over a decade ago. They produced a, a very comprehensive report on it um, and it showed a multi-point tolling on the M50 would be something that could you know, make the cost more equitable and reduce the number of kilometres driven. Uh, but now it's been resurrected again as part of the Climate Action Plan and uh, this project, Bruce, has been kind of rolling on for about a year or so now. So what are the problems with the tolls as they're currently operating? I suppose at the moment, the way they're currently operating, they're at one pinch point, say, for example, on the M50. Um, and, and a lot of people would have to use that, whereas people on the rest of the piece of infrastructure aren't using that toll. Um, that would be the problem. But I think that the wider issue is, you know, why are we still tolling these roads? And if this is revenue generation, perhaps it could be done in a better way. Geraldine, do you see any problems with this new plan with Project uh, Bruce, multi-pole plan? Yeah, I think the issue is we, we saw very recently that um, toll increases or the increase in charges can be very, very unpopular. We saw the government had to roll back on the proposed increases and they're, they're now not being introduced till next July. So I think it's a manage, it's, it's, it's a way of, we have to manage how we bring people on board and it depends what the objective is that of the toll is, exactly what Brian is saying. If it's revenue generating, I don't think you get buy-in from people. If it's a more equitable system whereby you're paying for the usage of, you know, so you're only paying for what part of the toll road you actually use I think then you've a much better chance but it's definitely a matter of how you sell it to the public mm-hmm. because toll charges are not popular. That's a relevant point that Brian makes isn't it that you could be travelling on a particular part of a motorway every single mm. day and you get caught every single day paying the toll you could go for a big long stretch mm. like down the M11 for example and have no toll yeah. Or you could be travelling from one side right through to the airport and travelling the complete extent of the toll and yet you're only paying one charge. You see, this goes back to when this was first introduced, we didn't have the technology. We had a physical barrier where you had to actually, you know, physically hand over money. So now things have changed. We've much better ways of doing things. And I suppose the M50 and all our toll roads need to be updated for that. But as I said, the biggest problem is how it's sold to the public, because if it's a revenue generating thing, people are not going to buy into it. Do you agree with that, Brian? I would agree with it. If, if it is revenue generating, I don't think people will will buy into it. I do think technology is there that can that can help it, and and people could pay by usage, um, and it could be done on the motorways. There are other plans that I think that they're they're looking at as well. That you know perhaps we would have GPS units in our cars, and we would pay by you know whatever road we were using. I think that's overkill. I think you know that would take so long to be brought in, that perhaps if it is revenue generating, then you know just increase the price of of, of motor tax or increase put a tax on on fuel that's definitely pay by use and would do you think that if this is brought in this uh, multi-point tolling system that motorists will be even more likely than they are now to avoid motorways 
I suspect it will be. I th- you know, I think people are, you know, they're, they're feeling the pinch everywhere. And I think in, in the short term, people might do that, that, you know, the more efficient journey would be to, say, use the M50 and that they might start to clog up, you know, um, suburban roads instead of, you know, hitting a couple of points on the M50. It, it really depends, as Shirlene says, how this is sold to people, what the money is being used for. So, you know, if the, the revenue that's generated on the M50 is paying for roads across the country. You know, that's a hard sell for, for motorists that yeah. use that road every day. Mm-hmm. Are tolls effective or could they be used in an effective way, Geraldine, to influence motorist behaviour? Yeah, I think very definitely they can be. And I mean, in the end of the day, we want people to use motorways. We don't want them, you know, going into towns. That's why we built motorways. The problem with them going into towns is not only that they'll cause these lengthy tailbacks at peak times, but also we're spending a million euros a day on cycling and walking infrastructure. We don't want more traffic going through towns. We want people to be able to cycle safely and walk safely. Also, as I said, in terms of safety, they're much more, they're they're the most safe roads we have in the country. Therefore, we need people to use them and we should be able to use tolls to actually persuade people People, that this is actually a more efficient way to travel rather than, you know, avoiding them. And so that's why we need to be very careful about how we impose charges and what sort of charges we impose. There has to be a point where it becomes actually just that it's a disincentive. So we have to be very careful. This has to be part of a much wider, you know, conversation. So should the char- charges be as low as possible then? Well, you can change them. You could have them really low off peak because we'd like people on motorways at the weekend. We don't want them in our towns at the weekend if possible. So, I mean, you can look at it like that and we see that, I mean, the only place we do that at the moment is the port tunnel where we vary the cost of it. But that's something that's very simple to do. Mm-hmm. Brian, what do you say to that? Yeah, th- th- that's one way of doing it. Um, I, I suppose ultimately what we want is people not using motorways at all and that they're using alternative forms of, of, of transport. And Geraldine's right, you know, if the, the, the roads are being clogged up um, by, by motorists, it, it makes it much harder to sell walking and cycling. But ultimately, that's what we want. And if from, from an environmental perspective, if we really wanted people to stop using the motorways, I think the cost would be so high. Um, I, I think you could be talking well, now, about a 10 euro toll. Doesn't Geraldine um, want people, people to use the motorways? That's what Jordan yeah. is advocating, keeping the cars out of the towns. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. And, and, and I agree with that. But what I'm saying ultimately is we want people to get out of their private cars and, and not to be using the motorways and to be using more sustainable modes of transport. So is this plan, Project Bruce, part of playing to that agenda, getting people out of their private cars by making the motorways more expensive? I suspect that that will probably be some of the, the, the scenarios that they look at in this project. You know, how high does the, the cost of travel by car have to be in order to push people onto public transport or to maybe forgo trips or to take shorter trips? I would imagine that's definitely part of the analysis that you know, they're looking at. You know, if we if we put this uh, in place now, you will have people in rural areas saying that they're being unfairly levelled, uh, Brian, as opposed to people who are in urban areas. Of course, and they'd be right um, because they don't have the alternatives that there would be in, in, in urban areas. So that's why it really needs to be dynamic and it really needs to, you know, treat each of the different regions differently because they definitely have different access to, to, to public transport and more sustainable modes. And equally, you know, they've, they've different um, purchasing power for, for electric vehicles so they could avoid some of the tools perhaps. So it, it definitely needs to be dynamic. It, one size fits all will not work in this okay. project. Do you think that, as, as Geraldine says, the Dublin Port Tunnel is a good model when it comes to that? It is. It's a very good model when it comes to it, because, you know, if we have a higher charge in, in the more congested times, then, you know, maybe the, the trips that could happen at, at different times of the day would happen then. And then we would have less congestion, um, less emissions. Um, so so that's definitely something that we should be looking at, this kind of dynamic tolling. Um, we have it on the M50 at the moment in terms of speed limits. 
it would be just the speed limit and a different price that, that, that you would see above your head as you were driving along the road. That idea that Brian touched on, you know, having a GPS in your car mm. that could read how much driving you're doing and charge you accordingly. It might be difficult to get those GPSs in cars, but it would probably be a fairer system, Geraldine. Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately that's where we're moving towards. We won't have electric cars that pay very low motor tax. We will have everybody paying for the road usage. It's the only way we can do it. It's The question is how we do it. As Brian is saying, the GPS system sounds really good and in theory it would work very effectively, but that would have to be new cars. How would you, you know, what would you do with the older cars? The average age of an Irish car on our roads at the moment is about nine years, so you'd have a problem with that. You could do it very kind of rudimentary with the NCT when you'd read the, the mileage, you know, from year to year. But there are ways of doing it but definitely that's what we're moving towards is a way that we can do it in a fair and equitable way that will be related to the distance you travel. Motoring journalist Geraldine Herbert, who, along with Professor Brian Caulfield from the School of Engineering at Trinity College Dublin, was talking to Claire Byrne about new tolling proposals for motorists on Irish motorways this morning. The brilliant Young Offenders actor Demi Isaac Oviawe despite her big Langer Cork accent, only became an Irish citizen recently. She spoke to Ray Darcy about it this afternoon. I just assumed you were an Irish citizen. Everyone did. It was an absolute shocker when I told people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I suppose you, you don't go around going, I'm not an Irish citizen, or people don't ask you. You know, they, they, you know, they might ask you what you want for dinner or do you, have, yeah. do you have sugar in your tea? But they don't go, are you an Irish citizen? Um, so so you, just remind us, how long have you been in Ireland? So I moved to Ireland when I was two years old and I've just turned 22, so 20 right. years. 20 years waiting for this. What was it like yesterday? Two one. It was be- It was a beautiful ceremony. I've seen so many people and I don't think I stopped smiling. Mm. But I think it's officially going to get real once I get my, my red little book, basically, like my passport with my name and my picture inside of it. Yeah. When will you get yeah. that? So it's like a it's like a child applying for their brand new passport. It's the same process. So mine should be in the post there soon. I should have it there within the next three four weeks. So you've been you've been travelling on a Nigerian passport all your life. Yes. What colour is that? It's green. <laughs> green, yeah. Uh, and when you came through, say Cork Airport or Dublin Airport, and people knew you from the telly, they they were probably a little bit surprised that you didn't have a an Irish passport. So, I got my first passport when I was 16 and obviously the young fellas hadn't happened at that point so it was a bit iffy, you know, going through immigration. Yeah. But after the young offenders came in and you'd be flying in from Cork Airport, they hear me speaking and it gives them a fright. It's like, <laughs> how is this an Nigerian passport but you're, you're so Cork, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then you've got a few people go, oh, sure, that's yours. <laughs> And I'm like, yeah, yeah, can I just pass through? It's been a long journey, like. Yeah. Um, so just, and I know it, it'll be real when you get the passport, but yesterday in there with like three and a half thousand others, all, uh, you know, have, have worked towards this day for quite some time. Um, yeah. So there must be a lot of, must have been a lot of emotion in the room. It was, it was weird because like, it took, it took a lot for people to come in. So the, the, the ceremony was on at once. But it didn't really start until about two o'clock because there were so many of us. Mm. And the queue went from literally outside the INEC all the way around to the other hotels. So it was it was a massive queue. So you're queuing up to get in, that's all grand. And then the band keeps playing and then 
the the army of the colours come out and then the minister comes out and then the pre the judge comes out and then they speak and then they make you do a declaration of like saying to be a very up up it's a big wordy thing basically but you speak and anyway, that's grand. And there was a man from Saudi Arabia sitting next to me and by God was he absolutely ecstatic. I was more happy for him than I was myself. <laughs> he was like, We're Irish, we're Irish, we're Irish. I was like, I know, this is perfect. And the minute they said everything is over, people booked it for the door because it's a 40 minute long ceremony. Yeah. But um, no, it was great. It was fantastic. And I genuinely have not stopped smiling. Since? Yeah, and, and yeah. we've spoken to the retired High Court judge, Brian McMahon, and he, he's the man who is the MC for the day and he talks you through it, doesn't he? And he, yeah. he, and he explains to you how important it is, citizenship. Yes, it, it's very important. Like, I didn't really, it didn't, I always knew I needed a passport because I've been restricted for a lot of jobs that I've auditioned for. Um, I've missed out on a master job when I was 17 for not having a passport to be able to travel to London within two weeks. So that was a hard-hitting moment for me because I never really took into consideration. Mm. Um, when I worked on the Netflix job, I needed to get a visa from for the UK in order to work in Belfast. So that was like a shock to the system. Yeah. Um, to travel on holidays, I can't just book a spontaneous trip and go, right, I'm going on holidays next weekend. I have to plan two months in advance. All right. But I seen a woman there yesterday and she was pregnant. And it only dawned on me that if I was pregnant or if I had had a child, my child wouldn't be Irish until I was Irish because of the nationalisation act of 2005. So now that doesn't matter because you're an Irish citizen. Can you... I am, but you just never think of that before. Yes, do you know yes what I, mean? I do. Uh, can you tell me what big job you missed out on? I can't tell you that. Right. I, it, it was it was a big American production. That's all I can say. But okay. let's just say I was crying for about a week afterwards. Right, and that was because you, you had a Nigerian passport, and it took time to organise travel. And by the time you'd organised that, it was too late. Uh, yeah. I, I see this guy Daryl Vance, who was there yesterday. Um, He's uh, originally from America and now living in Lockray. He says, I've just been put on the guest list to the world's greatest club. Uh, not the poshest, not the flashiest, but the best. That was his description of becoming an Irish citizen, which is nice. Uh, uh, your, your dad, was your dad an Irish citizen? He just turned, he just became an Irish citizen just before he passed. Ah, right. Yeah. So he's dead around seven years now. He'd be, he'd be proud. Yeah. He would be. It was absolutely. I cried because I realised that I would get my nationalisation without my dad being there. Hmm. I'm going to direct people towards the school for good and evil because you're in that. It's a Netflix movie. Yeah. It's it's great, and you're great Thank in you. it. Yeah, yeah. Thank so you. so I, I was surprised to see you there. I don't know why, but but I was. Uh, so that that that's a big enough part, isn't it? Uh, it it's it's. Let's just say you see me a bit more if there's more movies coming out. She's. I play a very important role, let's just say. Yeah, because it, it seems like there's going to be a sequel. I can't say anything. You're right, OK. You're, you're very tight-lipped <laughs> about everything today. <laughs> but, but, but one thing you're not tight-lipped about is the fact that you are now uh, Demi Isaac Oviawi, an Irish citizen! Yay! Woo! Congratulations to Demi Isaac Oviawi. There she was, talking about becoming an Irish citizen after 20 years on this afternoon's Ray Darcy Show. Ryan Tuberty described as visceral, immersive, 
the experience of watching a new German adaptation of the classic World War I novel All Quiet on the Western Front. This morning he spoke to the film's director, Edward Berger, and asked him to give listeners a synopsis of the plot. It's basically about a bunch of, a group of friends, uh, maybe 18 years old, just out of school, who get sort of manipulated into going or inscripting for into the First World War. And they go off uh, to France thinking they'll be back in three weeks. And in the trenches, they quickly find out that, you know, nothing is really worth anything. Their lives, their morals, their values, their idealism, their youth basically pretty much dies very quickly in the mud. Okay, and and therein lies the, the, the rub, as it were. Um, for you and this story, this and, and the, the making of this film, let me ask you about your daughter, if, if you don't mind, and her reaction yeah. to... But let's go there first, because I think that dads and daughters and the, the influence that they have on their fathers professionally and personally is enormous. In this case, such is the case. Absolutely. So I usually, uh, when I uh, go around with an idea, so I got a call from my producer, Malte mm. Grunert. He said, like, would this be a good idea to make? And I immediately sparked to it because this book was somehow in me. You know, I'd read it 25 years before and I never really forgot it, even though I never had the idea of making a movie about it. But when he said, I thought, like, mm, this might be a good idea. So I go home to, dis- dis- to discuss this with my family. Mm-hmm. And my, my kids are of course, utterly uninterested in that topic. Yeah, and they don't want to know like what mm. I'm going to do next. And, mm. uh, well, they don't care. And uh, <laughs> so they get up, do the dishes once in their life. Yeah, And <laughs> and then I mention this title. And my daughter, in that moment, for the first time, mm. she whips around and goes, all quiet on the Western Front. If you have the chance to do it, you absolutely have to. I just read it in school. Uh, it's, it's the book that touched me most. I mm. cried several times. And... And I thought 90 years after the release of this book, you know, it still has an effect on a young girl of 17 back then. Mm. It must still have an incredible power. It must be modern somehow. So I read it again and uh, after 25 years, and I thought, wow, this could have been written yesterday. Mm. Uh, and and then, basically, I followed my daughter's advice. Okay, because you, you say it could have been written yesterday because, as you rightly say, war is war. Uh, certainly the weapons might change, but the mentality and the psychology and the psychosis behind it tends not to change. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we of course, made this movie way before the Ukrainian war, be, be, before we thought... This could have a, an actual daily tragic relevance. Um, and now you see the images of you. There's a photographer, a German photographer, Wolfgang Tillmans. I don't know if you know him, but he, he's like an artist. And he went to the trenches in the Ukraine. Mm. And it's shocking how it looks exactly the same. So you say weapons have changed. Not really. You know, it's still the same thing, uh, uh, unfortunately, and so horrifying to see. So what what you grew up watching, Edward, were all the, the, the largely the American and British movies, which were such celebratory films about uh, the Allies, and rightly so, defeating Nazis and World War One. the same again. Great wins, glorious endings to an extent, um, and marching into the future with the, with the flag unfurled and the head held high. Now here comes this German filmmaker with this horrible story um, and that changes everything. There's, there's a totally different psychology, I suspect, for you with this work in your hand. It's, very, it's, a, it's a very precious, fragile thing to be minding. 
Yeah, I mean, it just felt uh, it's an in, it could be you know if if we succeed in bringing it to you, it 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 could be that was a big reason to make it that we grew up on American films or British films and they obviously have a very different perspective mm -hmm. on war. Um, you, you know, not only was England attacked or roped into a war, but it defended itself was victorious. You know, people came home and were in a way celebrated and there was a sense of pride and honor if you look back on it also in, in, in that perspective of uh, that part of history. Yes. And in Germany, of course, there's, you know, especially with, the, with both wars, uh, there's nothing but, you know, shame and guilt and uh, responsibility towards that part of history. And that, that, you know, we thought if we, you know, all of our decisions, all our DNA, basically mm. how we grew up, what's in us, our great-grandfathers, whatever, you know, they, they influence our decisions on this movie. Uh, and and we just, you know, we thought, therefore, the movie is probably, in the end, different than an American or British film uh, um, when when you see it, you know, the final result. And the, we thought that might be a good addition to, to a dialogue, you know. To, to, it's interesting for other countries to see how a German crew... Basically, we were a pretty international crew, but yes. but how how a German movie deals with the subject matter. And was it for the German members of the crew, including led led by you, Edward? Was it was it difficult? Was it was it emotional, or were you able to part that, compartmentalize, and just get on with making a movie? Well, I'm pretty. Um, rational i guess during the making of a film or just you know you just think technically in a yes. way you want to you want to make the you want to get through it you want to make the day you want to make the schedule you want to get the you know everyone behind you want to get it as perfect as possible so i look at all the technical elements and try to evaluate the the, the performance as well um but i remember there was a a moment uh, when there's a big scene in, in a crater where mm. uh, Paul Boimer, the main character, stabs um, um, uh, a, a French soldier. Yes. And um, he he um, uh, um, uh, stabs a French soldier, and he... Um, uh, it goes on um, for and, quite and some it, time, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, that scene, it, they're at each other and they're stabbing and hugging. It's it, like two it, boxers it, in a ring. Exactly for ten minutes, yeah, and yes. he sees him dying, and he realizes he's just the same, yeah. yeah? He's just also a, a, a soldier, a human being, and he 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 and and so this boy plays this, and he he suddenly hears a sound, and he realizes it's the camera person, uh, the the English camera person, kind of crying, while he watches this. And uh, and Danny, the operator, he told me afterwards that he grew up in England um, and educated by his grandfather that um, he, you know, he should hate the Germans. And uh, we shot this on on uh, Czech ground in a country that was obviously invaded by the Germans a couple of times with a lot of Czech crew, French actors. Um, and so all these international crew members and cast members came together and I think were quite affected in the end mm -hmm. by the shooting of it but it also was a wonderful experience that really brought us together so that was fun Well you, you're talking about the echoes of history clearly because none of the people on the crew would have fought in World War One or World War Two or any recent war to speak of if any at all um, mm. And yet, there, there, were, there was the echo of history ringing very loudly in the ears. It, it, you know, history has that effect, doesn't it? 
Yeah, you, we, it's just in us, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's part of the DNA. We inherit it, and uh, we don't want to realize it. But it's—I feel it every day. You know, it's, it's somehow in me. The film is—is—it's—it's it's an anti-war book, and therefore an anti-war film in many ways. But you do get a sense of sympathy for the boys, for that's what they were in the mud, for that's what it was. Mm -hmm. And then you're—you're you're not afraid to show us the generals throwing slabs of meat to their one of many dogs beside the log fire in an opulent castle somewhere and the very obvious suggestion being you know our armchair generals versus cannon fodder yeah, I mean, there's, the film is very much about contrast too, about loud peace and destruction, about beautiful nature and the battlefield, mm. and between, you know, generals who kind of theorize, do a chess game on a board mm. and think like, okay, this, this, you know, let's move this army to the left, the other army to the right, and then we'll win, and and just for their own sort of personal advancement, and and then it contrasts these images with, you know, the soldier sort of crawling through the mud and uh, basically becoming a survival instinct animal, a beast of survival by, and he, you know, he, he needs to do that in order, he needs to shut off all emotion. That's what the movie is about, yes. you know, the, these kids that have to shut off everything that is inside of them in order to survive, you know, in order not to be, to to cope with the, with the idea of having to kill uh, other human beings. That's Edward Berger, director of a new film adaptation of All Quiet on the Western Front, talking to Ryan Tuberty this morning. Half of cancer patients who present to doctors have an advanced form of the disease. On this morning's Today with Claire Byrne, Aileen Rogers, clinical lead for cancer surgery at the Matter Hospital and consultant colorectal surgeon, told Claire how she'd like to see the future of cancer strategies focus on patients with advanced or metastatic cancers. And she wants the language around cancer to change as well. So there's a lot of words around it. There's spread, metastatic, terminal, like terms like that, where a patient comes out of getting a big diagnosis and it can be a very panicky time and they go straight to Google. And when you look at uh, what is out there now about stage four cancer and what's available when you go and read about it or what the terminology is, it can be very confusing, as I say. Whereas in actual fact, what we're seeing across the board now in all cancers and in all presentations is a sea change in the management and the outcomes for patients who do have stage four cancers. Um, with the evolution of cancer care and the availability of all sorts of new um, drugs, treatments, surgeries, radiotherapies and targeted therapies so for these patients. So even if you hear the word stage four, the word stage four, mm -hmm. you, you, you shouldn't feel hopeless. Is that what you're saying? Well, obviously, if you were to get any sort of a diagnosis, you'd rather not get cancer. And if you're going to get cancer, you'd rather that it be localised rather than advanced or metastatic. So the outcomes are obviously worse for those that are uh, that have spread more widely. But the point that we'd like to get across is that that is changing and there are options for life preserving and life lengthening treatments um, whereas before, even up to in the last decade, you know, a diagnosis of stage four cancer was essentially synonymous with planning the end of life care. Whereas we are now able to achieve 
um, life lengthening, quality of life um, improving treatments for people and actually cure for some, for a certain group. Um, and the thing about it is, is that when the, the point is that when you're a patient with cancer, it should be a personalised and individualised treatment plan for you rather than Googling this one term that mm-hmm. isn't in any way reflective of what your cancer might do. So instead of the stages, stage one cancer, stage mm-hmm. four cancer, you prefer those terms that you just use there, localised and advanced. Will you explain those to us? Yeah, so a localised cancer is one that is um, just confined to the organ that the cancer was found in in the first place. So whether it's skin, breast, colon, that it hasn't gone anywhere else. And that so 50%, as you mentioned at the top of the segment, 50% of cancers at new diagnosis are localised. And for those, the outcomes are actually really, really good and really, really um, well managed and treated in this country. Um, Where the cancer is advanced, it can either spread from that organ to something nearby, so a direct spread, and that's called locally advanced, and then metastatic is where it has spread elsewhere in the body. Um, And so um, the figures would be approximately 30 and 20% reflective or respectively of patients who present with a new diagnosis who would have either locally advanced or widespread advanced cancer, metastatic cancer. So when it comes to survival rates from those various Mm -hmm. cancers, localised and advanced, can you take us through, because I know you had a look at some of the statistics around that. Well, this is actually what's really interesting because um, it's a real testament to cancer care in this country that we have now a centralisation of cancer services. And that was brought in by a previous government, by Mary Harney, um, And it's something that is something that we should be really proud of. And when we look at overall survival rates for the whole country in cancer, the overall five-year survival rate for all cancers that walk through the door is 65% at five years, um, which is actually, you know, a reasonable figure when it comes to um, looking at it in Europe. Um, Those figures haven't been broken down in the national publications in terms of localised, advanced and metastatic um, so, for example, in the National Cancer Strategy, or um, they, they weren't broken down by stage, but it is possible to look at that. So getting national data, you can actually look at that data individually. And for those that are localised, our five-year survival uh, across the board is about 95%, which is excellent. I mean, you can't really improve that much on that. That's quite good. Well, I think and that's you a good were, positive message. If you were hearing that figure on diagnosis, you'd probably walk out feeling quite different yeah. if you had that information, right? Yeah. Yeah. So obviously it is a very positive thing to have a localised cancer if, if that's the circumstance you're in for the most part. Um, and then with um, locally advanced tumours, um, it is obviously, as you would imagine, a little bit, the, the five-year survival isn't as good. It's around the 40, 50 percent um, mark across the board. That's for all cancers. And then and then for metastatic cancer, where it has spread, the five-year survival is poor. And that's, you know, not just um, Irish data, but that's international data. But the Irish data is about 10 percent at five years. And that is improving. And there is there are ways to improve that um, by by um, embracing the change in cancer care that has happened 
both with drugs and therapeutics and surgical options and radiotherapy mm-hmm. and other targeted options. And, um, you know, we're hoping to improve that, you know. So improve survival rates yeah. for the advanced cancers. Well, I suppose it's for all cancers, really, isn't mm-hmm. it? Because but as you said, you know, if you're at 95% exactly. and it comes localised, there's not much you can do yeah. there. That's pretty exactly. good. Yeah. But there is work to be done on the other side. Yeah. So the National Cancer Strategy, which is a fantastic document, um, aims to buy the so the end of the current national council strategy is is due in 2026 and the aim of that document was to improve the five year survival of all cancers and mm-hmm. um, to bring it up to the top quartile in the EU and um, by 2026 but the problem I suppose is that without targeting advanced and metastatic cancers um, specifically, or else trying to reduce their incidence, which is very much one of the strands of the cancer strategy um, by early trying to improve early detection. Um, but it, uh, unless you actually target the treatment and outcomes of those patients, which at the moment are a 50 percent, you know, they're, they're half the patients that are coming through the door. Uh, unless you target the outcomes of them, unfortunately, we won't be able to overall improve our cancer outcomes in this country. And what would be the one thing that could be done to help with those survival rates, do you think? I don't think there is one thing, Claire. I think it's got to be a national uh, agenda item that takes a lot of thought. Um, definitely, I think they're already on the ball trying to improve early detection and bring shift the curve to the left so that those who you know, have an early cancer actually are detected at screening with a pre-invasive condition and vice, you know, and the same for the, the metastatics that ideally if they sought treatment, you know, if they if there was a recognition of symptoms or, or an early detection programme that they would be um, identified early. But the reality is that at the moment, as it stands, 50% are presenting late and we need to aggressively treat them now and help them in their five-year outcomes. Clinical lead for cancer surgery at the Matter Hospital and consultant colorectal surgeon Aileen Rogers talking about Ireland's cancer strategies with Claire Byrne this morning. With the Christmas coming up, people are looking for all sorts of hard-to-find items, like Lisa on this afternoon's Live Line. Well, I have um, two children with autism and my eldest child, she's almost 11, she has autism and an intellectual disability okay. and she has an unusual request for Christmas this year. Okay. Actually, she requested last year as well. She has a love of Peppa Pig. Okay. Uh, George Pig is Peppa's younger brother. Oh, don't we know? <laughs> don't we know? <laughs> and, um, you know, over the years, she has a lot of Peppa Pig toys and books and all the rest. Okay. And last year, she happened to come across um, George Pig ice lollies online. Okay, so she latched on to them. So she latched yeah. on and she showed her dad and I the picture and had made this request last year that we would get them. And we tried, but unfortunately we couldn't find them. So it was a bit of disappointment, you know, as you can imagine. So we thought that that would have been forgotten and then all the chat about the season again a couple of weeks ago and lo and behold, she remembered. Ah, the George Pig Ice Lolly. And she doesn't want the Peppa Pig Ice Lolly? No. The, the, the Peppa Pig yeah. ones we can get. Yeah, yeah the course. Peppa Pig ones we can get, yeah. So, or any of the other so, relations. We want the George <laughs> Ice Lolly. The George, Lally. yeah, specifically, yeah. She's very specific. So, um, you know, we tried to do a little bit of research ourselves and the 
pictures that we can find online say that they are exclusive to Asda. Okay. And the manufacturer is Leone. So we've emailed Leone and mm-hmm. uh, haven't heard back, unfortunately, and we've tried to call uh, a lot of the Asda stores up the north, but it's very difficult to actually get through to anybody. Course, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And we, there's no email addresses available. We had a lovely friend last weekend who drove up to Ennis Dillon. Wow. Um, yes, they are lovely friends who have two children on the spectrum themselves. And where, did, where, were they, where were they? Where did they drive from? Uh, from Galway, yeah, from Galway. They drove from Galway to Asda and Enniskillen in the hope of yeah, getting George Pepper Pigs. Yeah, I know, of course. You know, they're, um, what it's like for, you know, it's a simple request, but it's so important for a child with autism. Um, and so, they, yeah, they did that first, which was just really lovely. Um, but unfortunately, the Asda store there didn't have them. They said that the larger stores might have them. Um, so that's, where are the other larger so there, there's one in Belfast isn't there they're just there's outside Belfast. Belfast I think there's one in Strabane is, okay yeah, yeah so yeah we've tried to contact them and as I say unfortunately mm. I can't get through the um, the switchboard system you know the select the number I can't actually get to talk to a, a person yeah, yeah. and they say online to um, uh, check Doors physically, I suppose, for availability of products. So, um, you know, I, I suppose we're in Galway well, there's ourselves. Quite a, and there's, there's quite a few in in, yeah. in Belfast. Uh, sorry, in Northern Ireland, Antrim, Ballyclare, Bangor, Belfast. There's two of them. Belfast City. There's one. Coleraine. There's one. Cookstown, Downpatrick, Dundonald, Enniskillen, Kilkeel. That's Newry, really. Larne, yeah. Newtonards, Oma, Portadown and Strabane. Is there anyone driving by one of those Asdas at the moment? And would you have a minute to slip in and ask them, do they have, not the Peppa Pig, the Peppa Pig's little brother, George, the uh, box of ice lollies, and then we'd organise through hell, till hell freezes over, uh, to get them frozen and uh, delivered down to you. Your whereabouts are you, Lisa? We're in East Galway. Oh, you're in East Galway, okay. Yeah. So yeah. was there anyone yep. driving by Antrim, Ballyclare, Bangor, Belfast, Belfast City, Coleraine, Cookstown, Downpatrick, Dundonald, Enniskillen, Newry, Larne, Newtonards, Oma, Portadown, would you sl- uh, slip in and ask them, have they got George? And they would they, they would look at you quite strangely, but tell them <laughs> this is a really, this is to help Santa. Santa's up to his eyes, and especially yeah. with the snow coming. So we need a bit of help to get George uh, ice lollies, and then we. That would be amazing. And if we locate them, but they'd put them in the storeroom with your name on it, and then we'd organise some somehow to get them from wherever we can find them to um, East Galway. That would just be that would mean a lot, Joe. That would okay. really be amazing. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. And you've enough to be dealing with. So if we can help, we will definitely help. Uncle Joe helping out listener Lisa. Well promising to help her out with her unusual Christmas gift request on this afternoon's Live Line. Finally, on this edition of Playback Daily, after a forced COVID hiatus, office Christmas parties are back with a bang. And intrepid today with Claire Byrne reporter Brian O'Connell had all the details this morning. 
I suppose with remote working, the the staff party has almost taken on an added significance in that some workplace in some workplaces because it obviously allows for everyone to come back together and to bond. But I suppose it's when the bonding doesn't quite go to plan, or maybe when it goes too well that the trouble <laughs> can start. Um, you can be a little bit too honest, I think, telling your boss, your co-workers what you think of them. Uh, not not a good idea. That so there are a couple of tips we'll give you, and I've also heard from people in Cork City last night, including one man who isn't keen at all on the idea of the work Christmas party. Mm, Looking forward to hearing that. First though you heard from a a gastropub. Now they're very happy there that the party is back. And they are. I mean it's been a tough time in hospitality. The energy uh, crisis continues to put huge pressure on businesses so they are hoping for a bumper few weeks in the work party market. It's very very important. Now I met with Philip Nealon in Gallagher's gastropub. It's just on McCurtain Street in Cork City and they had a busy lunchtime trade yesterday but if you're looking to have your Christmas party in there in the December, forget it, because they've actually been booked out for months, such as the demand for nights out again. So the Christmas party, it's very much back then, according to Philip Nealon, who's in the trade almost 30 years. They're back in full flow this year, actually. Um, we had a few last weekend. Next weekend, they're back in earnest, no, no restrictions and singing and dancing for the evening. Because <laughs> I was going to ask you, like, have people forgotten how to behave at a Christmas party? <laughs> it's, um, after half past ten, when the beer starts flowing and the music starts, you kind of... Uh, they kind of forget themselves for an hour or two, right, yeah. Dangerous thing to do at a Christmas party. Not at all, no, no. Sure, look, I think people are well used to it at this stage, you know. But I mean, the shackles are off this year for the first time in three years, you know. What makes a successful Christmas party? Um, everybody's talking the following day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look. And you haven't been fired. No, that's the thing, yeah. You have a job on Monday morning and you're still talking to one of your colleagues. <laughs> um, I know, like, I mean... Once everybody has a good night here, and we can see it here because we're, it's a very personal relationship with the, with the staff and with the customers, you know. It's, it's an important part of the business, is it, Philip? Oh, very much so. And we did feel it for the last couple of years with the restrictions and that sort of thing. Because you're going into January for them quieter times. So oh, yeah. You need that Christmas bounce, obviously. Definitely, yeah, because, I mean, January can be a very lonely, quiet time in this industry. And uh, Sundays and Mondays, and you're looking out the window at the rain, you know. We, like, had you any concerns the Christmas party wouldn't come back? Because people had kind of gone out of the habit of having the Christmas party. Well, whatever concerns we may have had, I mean, they were probably alleviated by August or September when we started taking bookings, because we were like our, our weekends, our December weekends have gone for maybe the last 10 weeks, it's were fully booked up, you know, so. And is it still the tradition where the boss would pick up the town? Yeah, um, well, we, we don't have anybody asking to split the bill 40 ways anyway, so, which is good because we, <laughs> we, we can't do that. You'll have somebody for two and a half hours splitting that bill. You can see from demand already, is there a sense that people are trying to make up for lost time this Christmas? Yeah, for sure. And like, where we normally wouldn't have seen parties this big, um, it seems that everybody's getting involved now. You know, I think, we, I think our, our Christmas bookings for next year probably start in June this year. It's uh, a... <laughs> Philip has a fairly low bar there on the successful Christmas party. <laughs> you have a job and everyone's talking to each other on Monday. Um, the do's and don'ts then, Brian, of yeah. the Christmas work night out. Yeah, I suppose particularly people might be out of the habit of the work too. Uh, I talked to a career coach and a business mentor, Ronan Kennedy. He's lots of years advising business executives on the best workplace practices. And he said there are ways you can obviously ensure you don't wake up the morning after with huge regret. I think it can, it can be a nice opportunity to... Uh, socialize with colleagues outside of work uh, and and then I suppose if you are thinking in terms of work or or, or career-wise going back to work uh, next year after having developed more personal relationships with people can be can be both beneficial to work but also uh, create a more enjoyable uh, workplace so I think it has a it has a good function the huge increase in remote working and hybrid working over the past uh, 
two years or so over the COVID period has really just meant that people have felt a little bit more distant, a little bit more isolated. So uh, getting some much needed FaceTime and human interaction, I think, is uh, is a very welcome, uh, very welcome change. Not to be too trivial about it, but, you know, if you are a company organizing a Christmas party, you got to be careful as well, don't you? Yeah, I think you have to be careful. You're always going to be conscious of your brand and your uh, your image. Maybe one thing to do is if you're bringing people together from uh, different life stages, whether they're they're graduates or whether they're experienced employees or different cultures or different uh, you know regions of the country, and they don't have a lot of time to uh, to get together and get to know each other. Having games as a kind of common ground or having some sort of common ground on the day can be can be useful, you know. And who pay who picks up the tab? Uh, the companies pick up the tab, of course. I think if you if you think about it as an investment in uh, the goodwill that the employees have have shown over the the year, I think that will be uh, that will be much appreciated. I guess you just want to make sure that you represent yourself well. That There's sounds a... very reasonable and practical, and probably will be ignored by the majority of people. Yeah. Use an opportunity to build relationships and and uh, and have a good time. So the next time you have to pick up the phone to them, you know, you can uh, you can relate the, the good experience you had at the party. Very positive. Uh, Ronan Kennedy mm. there offering his advice. And you got some interesting observations from people who you were out and about last night. Yes, as you'll hear, some people absolutely dread the idea of a work night out. And then people I met who are working in the trade, they have to wait until well into January for their chance to make a fool of themselves in front of the boss. And I also met a, a mum and her daughter who gave me their take on the work do. So this is some of what people had to say about staff parties last night. When I was six years old, I begged my mother not to send me to a Christmas party where Santa was giving out toys, party games and presents. And so I, I suppose I'm the, I'm, well, I'm not the original. Grinch. There you go. <laughs> but <laughs> let's just put it this way. I suppose I'm not really, don't really think of myself and others would agree that I'm not really a people person. I now, pity the colleague who's going to be seated beside you with the Christmas well, party. They're going to be lucky because there's going to be an empty seat and they'll be able to put their handbag there or their, their, their bottle of champagne. You or, won't be there. Well, it's tradition that I don't attend these things. They wow. don't expect anybody that hears this will know exactly who I am and say, oh, isn't that just typical? Could he not have just smiled once on the radio and cheered everybody up? Like, it's once a year. It's not a, it's not a big ask. You say that now, but, I mean, you know, you haven't heard the speeches. Now, if there's a karaoke machine, I could be persuaded to come along and sing. What would be your classic? What would be the hit you would um, bang out? Uh, well, my wife and I do a very good uh, Don't Go Breaking My Heart, Elton Sean, Kiki D. Will you go to one? I will if there is one. Just another night to spend money on as well. I feel like we're all a bit broke this Christmas anyway. Well, come here, does the boss not dash out the cash? I suppose he'd be a lot more generous. Yeah, he would. And is there an expectation? I don't know, like what industry do you work in generally? I work just inside there in the in bar, the bar. industry, yeah. So for you as a bar worker, it's probably after Christmas, is it? Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. Are you having to deal with everyone else's staff party first? Yeah, they're just picking up now. What's that like? Look, they're all right. They're good. Look, business You're is business. You're being diplomatic now. Yeah. <laughs> it's tough. It is tough. It is. Yeah. The handbrake is off. Handbrake is off. They're going full swing now this year, I'd say. I'm after mine. I had mine a few weeks ago, so I must Any say... scandal? No. <laughs> a bit, but I won't say much. Post-Christmas party person on the street teasing us in Brian O'Connell's report for Today with Clareburn this morning. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Shirathon. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio player. And there'll be another episode of Playback Daily at the same time tomorrow. Probably. 
Until the next time, thank you for listening and good luck.